The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. And we are the hosts of A Thing or Two with Claire and Erica, a weekly podcast all about discovery and enthusiasm. Well, that's how we describe it, but someone else described it even better, I think, as a unique mix of urgent discussions of non-urgent things and thoughtful conversations of important and otherwise ignored things. If you want to check it out and see what it's all about, check back every Monday where we drop new episodes. I think you'll like it. It's a great Monday morning ritual. A Thing or Two with Claire and Erica. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections in November. Make sure to text the word voter to 26797 right now to check your registration and to receive your polling location and reminders for all local, state, and federal elections in the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are very close friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of people who completely blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research. And we cannot wait to present you with our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Each episode, we will meet one of these incredible accidental activists. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. In this episode, we speak with the host of our favorite podcast, Work in Progress, the incomparable actress and activist, Sophia Bush. Since fourth grade, when she punched a bully in the face for attacking her friend, Sophia has literally been fighting for the rights of others. Sophia is one of our closest friends and our partner in I'm a Voter and truly one of the people who inspires our own activism the most. She always shows up. She always stands up for those who don't have a voice. And her passion pours out of her in every minute of every conversation. Sophia has spent her entire life advocating for the equal treatment of everyone. She is a founding member of Time's Up and I Am a Voter and has raised critically needed awareness and funds for Planned Parenthood, Do Something, Moms Demand Action, Fuck Cancer, and the Human Rights Campaign, to name a few. She is also a walking encyclopedia of social justice issues. And now it is our greatest honor to introduce Sophia Bush the Equality Warrior. We got Sophia Bush here. Hey. Hi. (laughs) So excited. This is so fun. We haven't even done anything yet, and it's already so fun. I know. And we're having wine, so it's great. It's after five. I love this. (laughs) Yes. So, Sophia. Yes. Tell us what it was like to be baby Sophia. What was your childhood like? It was actually very sweet. Yeah. Yesterday, for no reason, I get this text message from my dad that just says, love you with the heart eye emoji and this photo. (gasps) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. I would like to state for the record that my dad is the most adorable person on the planet and also that I was wearing puffy headbands before anyone. The (sighs) headband is everything. I know. My mom's mom and her whole family 
immigrated to the States from Italy. They took a boat. They came through Ellis Island. And then my dad, coming here as an immigrant, had a green card for a long time. And when I was 12, decided to become an American citizen. And I made flashcards and helped him study for his citizenship test. Oh, my God. Um, Do you have dual citizenship? I do not. And I've been meaning to get it for a decade. And I swear, I'm saying it out loud, 2020 is going to be the year that I do it. You should. It feels important. Yeah. It's really also, cool. there's just something sort of sexy about it's having multiple totally, passports. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally sexy. And if we need to, we can all move to Canada together. I can marry you and yes. we can go to Canada. I don't mean to leave you out, but you're already you're married. Already married. I, I was like, why am I not in this conversation? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to marry you and Peter, but I would. Oh, uh, Peter. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Peter. So did you grow up in a family where activism or advocacy or philanthropy, any of that was modeled for you? Mm, Not in the way that I think people might take it when you use those descriptors now. Mm -hmm. But what I do realize is that I grew up in a family where I had an immense privilege of exposure. My father is an immigrant. My mother is the daughter of immigrants. I am in the mixture of our family. I am a first-generation American on my dad's side and a second-generation on my mom's. My mother's family settling in New York was not welcome. The Irish and the Italians were not welcome. Mm -hmm. And the slurs and the names and the difficulty getting jobs was really oppressive to my family. My mom grew up in the projects in the Bronx. Wow. And she carries that with her. Uh And I think the level of street smarts that my mother has— Growing up where she did, eventually, you know, moving into suburban New Jersey, but having not a lot, and then living in Manhattan when she did, you know, in the 1970s when things were crazy. My mom has some stories. She just understands the world in a way that I think a lot of people who've been more sheltered maybe do not. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to, to learn a lot from her. I wish I'd learned more sooner and I might have made some of the stupid mistakes I made in my 20s, but it's fine. We've all been there. (laughs) We've all Uh, been there. (laughs) We all have to learn the hard way. And my dad moving here to be an artist, you know, he came here to go to art centers to study photography. He was always on the hustle. So long story longer, I say all of this just for background (laughs) because I grew up in the 80s in LA and my dad being an artist, I was surrounded by the multiculturalness that defines Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and also by the diversity that defines artistic community. Mm -hmm. So in the 1980s, all of my parents' closest friends were other artists. Mm -hmm. My uncle Jeff was a phenomenal makeup artist whose boyfriend Winston did drag as Diana Ross on the weekends. No. My uncle Tony was like a full-blown leather daddy in the nightclubs on the weekends who would sit and French braid my hair while my dad was doing photo shoots at the studio. Everyone was diverse. The models were, you know, Latina and Black and white and queer and straight. And I think about what an immense privilege it was to grow up in this community of people who, unbeknownst to me as a little kid, who was in love with everyone at the studio, when they would leave the studio, were still facing so much oppression. Right. When the AIDS epidemic hit, half of my parents' friends died. Oh, my God. It was a crazy thing to literally be going to funerals every weekend at Forest Lawn. Oh, my God. It was was really, really gnarly. And so early on on the playground, I remember 
I went to this school called First Lutheran, which was ironic because neither of my parents is religious and my family is like a mishigas of people. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I remember hearing kids talk about why people were dying of AIDS and getting in a fistfight on the playground <gasps> and saying like, you don't talk about my people that way. Wow. And so I was learning it before I knew what I was learning. Yeah. Because I was privileged enough to be exposed to people who were considered different. But that thing you do where you stand up for people, that doesn't come to everyone who grows up amongst diversity. Like, where did that, that, that sense of advocacy and that sense of what is just and what is not and taking a position? I get that, and I wish I had a better answer, but even just thinking about how angry that made me on the playground that day, I almost started crying telling you the story. Wow. It fills me with such rage, but as our friend Glennon Doyle likes to say, it's sacred rage. Okay? Yeah. Because it's so rooted in what is so clearly right. Right, yes. And all the lies and all the bullshit that everybody tells everybody f- to find a reason to hate other people, it's all nonsense. And it was so clear to me as a kid, because I think kids see, yeah, they just see clearly. They don't buy into anything because they haven't been indoctrinated in any way yet. And— it was always so clear to me, and I've I've never lost that. Yeah. I've I've run up against times where I've been intimidated, where I've been bullied, where maybe I've silenced my own voice because using it has felt overwhelming, but I've never lost a deep conviction about what's simply right and unarguably true. And, you know, occasionally I got in trouble. I I remember in the I remember in the fifth, no, fourth grade standing up for my friend Matt, who was getting bullied by a sixth grader. And I'd seen a bunch of movies, and I didn't know. And I kicked this sixth grade boy in the nuts. <gasps> and I mean, he just went down on the That's playground. amazing. Yeah, I was just mad. He was hitting my friend. He was big. It was scary. And I didn't know what else to do, so that's what I did. And I 100% got in an enormous amount of trouble. Me too. I did that in eighth grade. I punched a guy in the face. There you for go. talking shit to my friend. <laughs> well— and I'm not advocating violence, but you know, at the end of the day, as a kid, it's like you learn stuff from the movies you're watching. And yeah. Life, and I just did it. Yeah. And I remember when my parents were like, why did you do that? Why would you hit someone or kick someone? I just said, I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And he was being a bully. Oh, gosh. I, I, it would never cross my mind in fourth grade to, to get involved. I remember, I mean, I was bullied horribly, but I remembered witnessing mm. bullying and feeling like scared, like, oh my God, I just want it to stop. And if I say anything, it'll it'll just turn on me. Mm-hmm. And so clearly at some point, you got the message that your voice had value. Yeah, or at least and I you think, were allowed to have one. Yeah, and, and I think that scrappiness, I know that scrappiness comes from my mom. Mm. You know, my mom in her own way, is she just doesn't have a tolerance for bullshit. And that toughness was translated to me. And I think to your point, you know, you say something really interesting that it's so scary to be on the receiving end of. Yeah. I will fight to the death for someone else, but I will take an inappropriate amount of shit because I have this weird thing, and I think a lot of women have In the it. exact same a way. A thousand where, percent. Right? Where it's like, oh, well, but it's just affecting me, and I can deal with it. And I don't yes. need to make waves, and I don't need I'm to make strong. this awkward. And I'm not going to let anybody think I can't handle it. Yes. So but you I'm mess with it. my friend, and oh. oh. 
Game you over are, for you. Yes. Yeah. Game over for you. Yeah. Like a thing happens to me. I joke that I Hulk out. Like a thing happens and it's scary. <laughs> and people are like, I never want to be on the other side of that. And I'm like, no, you don't actually at all. You don't. Oh my it's gosh. Like, it's just not. You don't want to be there. But I have had to do some real investigative work on why I do not defend myself in the way I'll defend other people. And that's a real interesting can of worms. Do we know the answer to this? <laughs> I think it's a mix of Is it systemic culture. misogyny? Yeah. Indoctrination? I, I and- think it's misogyny. I also think it's the myth of the good girl. Yeah. You know, yes. there's the Madonna whore complex that we all know about. But what it really, I think, bifurcates into in, in the Madonna side is being the good girl. Mm-hmm. And for me, working on sets, which you know what that's like, It's being a good soldier, being a tugboat. This set depends on you. You know, you're on camera, but 200 other people eat or don't eat based on what you do. It's an immense amount of pressure. Unbelievable. To just not make waves, not make noise, you know, grin and bear it. There are always consequences to you speaking out Mm -hmm. when you are working on a set with 200 people. Oh, yeah. And the funny thing is, is because we're women and no matter what we do, it's wrong. If... And I've experienced this because we we dealt with some really inappropriate behavior from my boss on my first show. Mm-hmm. And when we finally all talked about it as a collective group of women, people were like, you fake feminists, you stayed for the paycheck, you know, fuck you guys. Why didn't you do something about it sooner? And we were like, you don't know what we were doing behind the scenes. We were trying to do something about it from day one. I hit my boss season one in front of a bunch of people. Nobody cared. What do you mean you Um, hit him? I hit it. I was just like a react. I was 21. And again, like I didn't know anything yet. (laughs) And I couldn't. So wait, that was was your first job? Yeah. When I was working on One Tree Hill. And I hit him. Oh. And I found out. God. I found out that was the first season in the first couple of episodes. And I found out at the end of season eight, because we thought the show was going to end then. So everybody just started telling all the secrets. And and one of the writers who became an executive producer of the show who was just on the writing staff back then in right, season one, right. said, oh, he was so pissed. He came home and he was like, that fucking entitled little bitch. Who does she think she is? And this writer said, maybe she just thinks she's entitled not to have her boss touch her on set, like trying to make a joke to defuse the situation. Yeah. And he said that my boss was like, do you like having a job here? Don't you ever fucking talk to me that way? You know, crazy. So people learn to fall in line. Yeah. And you defend each other in the ways that you can without rocking 200 people's boats. But then on the flip side, that was sort of child's play compared to my experience in Chicago. And so I left. I advocated for myself. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I went through all the reporting channels. I did the HR investigation. Yep. A year later when things weren't better, I made I did more reporting and then and then another investigator was sent out. And when I asked that person why they were starting over, I said, just read all the transcripts from right. the HR thing before. I don't right. know how many people went on the record, but I know for a fact 13 people had similar complaints to mine. And she said, there are no records. And so I found out HR had trashed the whole thing. Oh my God. Yeah. And at that point, at that point, I was ballistic and I was like, that's it, I'm out. Like I've been telling them since the beginning of the fourth season, I'm leaving at the end if nothing changes. This, like, this is where the Italian broad from the Bronx comes out. And I'm like, you made your bet. Like, I'm done. There is nothing you could say to keep me here now. I'm done. You don't get to railroad women. Like, no. So I left. And then the feedback is, you're weak. Fuck you. How could you leave? You couldn't take it. Are you a baby? And I'm like, so if I stayed for nine years and took it, 
and did my behind the scenes work with my other women on then set. Then you were just mercenary. Then, yeah, then I'm a horrible person who's doing it for a paycheck. Right. But if I leave to stand up for myself, then I'm a weak bitch who, you know, can't handle a bad environment. And Selfish, it's like, privileged. You know what? The answer to the both of you is no. Right. We have to always do our best. And especially, I think, as we get older, we learn to do things better. And for me, I knew that the biggest waves that I could make were leaving. And that's not an easy thing to do for work, for your finances, for anything. But that little kid who was like willing to knee somebody in the nuts on the playground, like that, that came out of me. And I was like, peace. (laughs) There was this quote from you where you said, I felt like I was standing butt naked, bruised and bleeding in the middle of Times Square, screaming at the top of my lungs and not a single person stopped to ask if they could help me. That is the worst. That is so feeling devastating. It was awful. In and the some entire of the, world. And some of the people I trusted the most, and I don't blame them. I blame the system that makes everyone so afraid for their livelihoods yeah. and their security. Yep. But some of the people I trusted the most would look me in the face and say, "I really wish I could say something, but I can't get involved." Why? When he does that to you, when he speaks to you that way, when he does what he does to I you, can't I, stop, I, I can't even. I can't say stop. I can't it. get involved. Guys on my crew would be like, I want to punch that motherfucker in the Mm -hmm. face, but I have two kids. I can't lose this job. You know, they make everyone feel threatened if they do the right thing. So even if it's killing people, they stay silent when they witness the wrong thing. And this is why I'm excited about Time's Up and the Legal Defense Fund and, and the curriculum they're creating for sets and producers because their aim is to change the system. Right. It doesn't matter if you say, we're not going to tolerate it anymore. The system tolerates it by nature. And that's true, by the way, not just in our line of work. Every industry. It, in every single industry. Every industry. Whether it's academia or the medical finance, industry, law, finance. Yeah. Every, every it's industry. It's crazy what women are subjected to. And America's got talent with just what happened. Yep. With Gab. With, yep. And it was, it's like, when, when is it going to stop? I don't know if anyone on my network side has anything to do with the reality side. Right. But what I do know is that no matter where you are in the conglomerate, you can't treat people this way. No. You cannot tell a woman that her hairstyles are too black for network TV. I, I, what? I, I literally, I was like, no, no, yeah. that's not possible. And this is why I think it's important to reiterate that we have to be examining the systems because there's all these people who say, well, Me Too happened in 2017. You know, everything's fixed. No, it isn't. Oh, no. We've just begun having conversations that are 100 years overdue. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't begun to see change in the system yet. What do you think? (laughs) What do you think is that? Both of us just stopped and we're like, like, yeah. I mean, I— Also, I don't always—I don't want to be serious all the time. I also really like to have fun. I just feel like I need to say that sometimes because I do get very impassioned. And then, you know— but I, but heavy. that is what's so unique about you. I mean, in addition to just all the amazing things about you, is this you ooze this passion at all times, and it could be about women's rights, but it could be about denim, and it's it's amazing <laughs> the spectrum of things that I have seen you care about so profoundly. You know, we were talking about this. You know, you were so early mm. in taking positions and being an advocate mm-hmm. and being an activist when. Many actors weren't doing that work, and mm. they were encouraged. I was told I couldn't. I was going to ask that. Did did your publicist, did your representative oh, yeah. say, no, you can't do that, stop? Everyone was like, you can't do this. You can't be this political. You're going to tank your career. And I was like, hello, look at Jane Fonda. <laughs> 
And I was like, I know I haven't won an Academy Award yet, and maybe I never will. But look at her. Yeah. You know, why why can't we do this? And and you know, they rightfully so, because it's, you know, our people's job to protect us brought up how completely just ousted she was for a time. And I get that. And look, I've lost out on opportunities for things, you know, mm-hmm. brands where I could have a huge endorsement deal and yep. like do a makeup campaign or do any of those things mm-hmm. that really are are what give actors security in our business. Yeah. We'll say, we would love for you to do this, but you're way too political. You get that all the time. I get that all the time, too. Of course you do. Mm-hmm. I lost a job that was literally done. All I had to do was, you know, sign on the dotted line. We'd negotiated everything. It was happening. Um, an, an endorsement gig. I lost in the 11th hour for violating their, quote, morality clause because I used the word pussy on Instagram. And I said I was referencing a documented, taped quote from the president of the United States. So he can say it and be the president, and I can't respond to it and quote him, quote him, and morally represent a brand. I was like, keep your blood money. Fuck you. <laughs> oh. Like, no, no. And and for me then, I was like, now you've burned a bridge with me. Yeah. Because what I now know is that you don't have integrity. Yes. And you want women to be good and quiet mm-hmm. and pretty and have nothing to say. Right. So, like, I'm not your gal. Yeah. It has been really fascinating, you know, we'll get here later, but since building I'm a Voter, because, you know, we go out to talent and their agents all the time, and we go out to brands mm-hmm. all the time, and they're like, it's political. But also, like— Stand for some. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so crazy to me this fear of upsetting people all the time and just it always comes down to money. But brands have more loyalty when they take a position, right? Like Dick's Sporting Goods didn't lose money when right. they no, said, they made money, yeah. right? Right. So people want to believe in a brand and a person because they believe in what they stand for, mm-hmm. and it feels like these super generic Instagram brands don't understand that the minute another version of them pops up, no one's going to care about them anymore Mm. because they literally stand for nothing. Right. But it goes against decades and generations of thinking in business. And so I get it. The world is changing so fast. People are having a hard time keeping up. Mm -hmm. Technology is creating innovation on an exponential multiplier. So a year is no longer a year. A Mm -hmm. year is a leap in five years in tech. Mm -hmm. It's It sort of bends the mind. And I understand that a lot of these companies don't know how to let go of this old, whether it's conscious or unconscious programming. And what's been interesting for me is I can give test cases to some brands about, no, saying something works. Look at this. You know, it's why people ask me, they're like, why do you go speak at Can Lion with like all these ad guys? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm up there talking to CMOs and being like, stop lying to us and tell us something interesting. (laughs) You know, this is what matters. It's it's my responsibility to spend my privilege. I'm a shiny object as an actor Mm -hmm. to those ad people. So yeah, I'll fly halfway around the world to give a talk on what taking a stance in advertising and media looks like because- I'm privileged enough to get their ear. Right. And, and I I have to spend that privilege in ways that could move the needle. How have you been able to balance your life as an artist and your life as, as a revolutionary? It's hard. I don't feel like I have solved for that yet. Balance is really hard. Mm-hmm. When I'm working on a show 
every moment that we're not shooting, I'm on my phone reading, researching, going through articles, going through all the news things that I look at every day, um, reading up on what all of the other activists I work with are doing. It requires a lot of work, but it's also the thing I'm the most interested in. Uh So I don't know how not to do it. I certainly give myself days because if I don't, then I then I get sick. So I'll give myself a day off and, you know, binge a show like I got home from some travel recently and binged season two of Sex Education and was like <laughs> screaming, clapping at the TV. I just, God, I love that show. I think it's the most brilliant thing ever. Um, uh, but those things feel important. You have to find moments for joy. I spend time with friends. I, I, I make sure that I'm refilling my cup in some way. And I have also taken a little bit of time off. And yeah. that that wasn't necessarily to prioritize activism. Activism is always a priority for me because that's part of who I am. My job is just what I do. Right. And I'm really lucky that I love my job and I want to do it forever. Right. But it's just what I do. It's a facet. You know, I always say that you're like this unicorn (laughs) because I've just never met anyone like you. And, you know, when I think about your work, obviously starting I'm a Voter, but, you know, being one of the, the founding people to sign the Time's Up letter and working on the Girl Project and LGBTQ rights and education and women's rights and the environment and and so many causes. I guess I, I never really ask what the repercussions of doing all of that work have been for you. You know, what backlash? Oh, I mean, it's, def- it's definitely cost me. You know, it's cost me jobs yeah. for sure leaving my job in the way that I did and not backing down about why yeah has definitely made and I and I know this and it's sad and I I know it won't be forever but it's definitely made some people go love her but can't don't want to deal with that like mm-hmm. I'm sorry. if that feels like a lot of that feels like a lot of drama to bring into something and I'm like it's not actually people setting a hard boundary about worthiness mm-hmm. and how all people and and in my case all women deserve to be treated in the workplace is not actually hard yeah it's kind of that thing that you know we heard after me too really broke open you heard men in power positions saying well i just don't feel comfortable hiring women anymore and it's like well we're not the problem actually you're you're feeling that way is the problem i think that that's changing and luckily, there's a lot of other really badass people who I've been able to collaborate with in recent years who don't think that way. Yeah. And that's awesome. I, I'm i just unwilling to fold myself into a smaller version of me in order to be an easier package for other people to receive. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to do that ever again. Because I've done it before. Yeah. To be a good girl and to be the tugboat and to be a good soldier. Oh, yeah. I will never do it again. I'll never do it again. Mm -mm. I just won't. Nothing is worth it. We were also talking about Moms Demand Action because all of Mm -hmm. us, you know, that cause is so, Mm -hmm. like, at the core of who we are, I Mm -hmm. think. And we all relate to it in Shannon and Everytown and what they do. And your position and unique perspective Mm. I've always found so compelling because you're the person that ever, you know, so many people want to attack that you're this like liberal elite Hollywood person that doesn't know anything about the second amendment. (laughs) And I don't want to butcher your position, but your position is one that, that I think we always found very unique and Mm. and we'd love to hear. Well, yeah, it's always funny to me when people say that because, you know, my dad 
grew up in Canada. He spent every summer on a farm on the St. Lawrence River, and one of his fond memories as a little boy was learning to shoot with his dad. So when I was 12, I got my first rifle from my dad. And I've been a sharpshooter since the age of 13. I'm probably not anymore. I don't go to the range as much as I'd like to. But I'm on the range a lot. I've been through tactical training with police departments, the SWAT team. I've worked with L.A. SWAT at Eagle's Nest here to train for a film. I own a couple of guns. I should say a few because it's more than three. I'm a real good shot. (laughs) I have impressed people who don't think that a girl can handle the kinds of weapons that I can. And I was on the range with my buddy, Pat, who's a Green Beret, shooting AR-15s three days before Parkland happened. Wow. I enjoy it. I enjoy the sport. So people don't expect that from me. And they also don't expect me to be a gun owner who has really serious experience with a whole cachet of weaponry and and supports our troops and is also a progressive, but also supports Colin Kaepernick. Like people are like, we don't understand. And to me, this is about research logic and connecting the dots. And when you layer on top of it that I lost a family member in a mass shooting. Yeah. Which I think most people don't know. Michael Moore and I spoke about it on my podcast. And I just interviewed someone yesterday whose brother was um, killed in an incident of gang violence here in L.A. And whether it's a, a, a single person being shot or a mass shooting, gun violence affects everyone in America. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the access to guns here means we have higher suicide rates because people are more easily able to take their lives. Right. Yeah. A lot of people who would be willing to put a gun in their mouth and end it are less willing to get on a chair and hang themselves. I'm sorry to be graphic. Right. No, I hope it's I'm real. Not, right. You know, triggering someone, but this is what the data shows. And if we didn't have as such easy access to guns, people would make those decisions differently. We would not lose as many women to domestic violence in America. We wouldn't have men calling 911 saying, I just shot my wife. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be an option. And it's hard not to think about those things. You know, we, we just, the Super Bowl was just on. And the day after the Super Bowl is the day of the highest reporting of domestic violence incidents in America every year. We have to start to look at these things and we have to start seeing them in a human way. And for me, I think about how when you lose someone, and for my whole family, that was kind of an aha moment of we don't have as much time as we think we do. Yeah. We can't do the thing where we say, oh, sometime we should all get together and go back to Teaneck and, you know, visit grandpa's family and you bring the kids and me, I'll come with my mom and it'll be so fun. You can't just say someday. And I was advocating for gun control before. Yeah. As a gun owner before. But my position only deepened because rather than being something I could understand theoretically and by proxy personally to other people I'd met who'd been through it, I understand it viscerally personally. I've sat with my cousin Roxana and talked to her about what it was like to lose her daughter. And it's not a thing you ever forget. What happens when you get into conversation with someone who is fiercely defensive of uh, the Second Amendment and Mm -hmm. says common sense laws are, gun control laws are just, you're basically taking my gun away. And then you tell them, 
your history. You tell them mm -hmm. that you have an arsenal of guns yourself and that you've lost people. And do you feel like you give any credibility to the position? Do you, mm -hmm. have, you, have you witnessed people in any way shift? Or do you think the fear is so deep? I've definitely witnessed some shifts. And that's why I'm willing to do it over and over and over again. I think that the fear, we also have to acknowledge so much of the fear comes from a PR machine. Right. Manufacturing companies. and Yes. This narrative of what the Second Amendment means and guns being American, that was created by an ad agency. Mm -hmm. It's not actually based in any factual reality. And this idea that we're meant to defend ourselves as a well-regulated militia, we're missing the term well-regulated. Right. <sighs> Yeah. We should certainly legislate something that has the power to kill people as well as we legislate cars. Right. Which also have the power to kill people. That's simply logical. Right. And I also think that we have to get a little grounded in reality. We're no longer talking about the era of the Civil War when both sides had muskets that took two minutes to reload one, one shot. shot at a time. Mm -hmm. The United States government has F-18 fighter jets and aircraft carriers. There's no defending ourselves against the government, guys. The time <laughs> has passed. Yeah. It's over. We have nuclear weapons. Right. And so do other countries. Right. Game over. This idea that if you have a gun safe and 40 AR-15s in it, you're going to be able to stave off an attack from the military. They'll drop a bomb on you and it'll be over. Right. It's game over. Yeah. And we need to understand why we've bought into a narrative that our neighbors are dangerous that's mm -hmm. been sold to us by the people making the guns that they say we need to protect ourselves from our neighbors with. Mm -hmm. We're smart enough to identify advertising in many arenas of the world. Yeah. And for some reason, because this advertising issue has had patriotism attached to it, right. it's become unhinged. And I think plenty of people are patriotic. As a person who quite literally has dealt with stalkers and death and rape threats on the internet, it's also interesting to me, especially being a person who has gone out on a, you know my fair share of hunts in the great American <laughs> Uh, northern <laughs> states now. In those communities, like, if I have a beer at a bar in Montana with a bunch of hunters, like, we all laugh. Like, if you need an AR-15 to hit a deer, which means you're going to blow up half the deer, like, you're a bad shot. That's right. Like, it's like, where's the sport? You know, there's no sport in that. Those yeah. are literal weapons of war. When, when a veteran like Pete Buttigieg talks about how he doesn't want to see those guns on the street because he knows what they're used for and the damage they cause because he's seen it up close and personal. Yeah. Why aren't we listening to him? Mm -hmm. And by the way, there's veterans who identify as Republicans who say the exact same yep. thing. Yep. These are not things we're supposed to have. They're things that a marketing agency figured out how to make seem cool so people would want to buy them. And it should be on us to legislate better, to protect each other, and to protect each other's kids. Kids aren't supposed to die like they did at Parkland. That's just not supposed to happen. Kids aren't supposed to be doing active shooter drills at the age of six, so trauma, getting traumatized. I mean, these kids are traumatized. Why are we prioritizing a hobby or corporate profit over the sanity and the well-being of our children? Mm -hmm. You see all these other countries that have legislated and changed things for the better overnight. 
Australia. Me, yes. I mean, Jacinda Arden is a rock star. She just said, no, this is what's right. Mm-hmm. And to me, yeah, I love the hobby of it. But my hobby's not worth more than your child's life. My daughter, Andy, came home this week, actually, and said, they, you know, she talked to me about an active shooter drill, mm. which I didn't know was happening because I wouldn't have let her be at school for it. I was so heartbroken that I couldn't have protected her from that. Mm. I was so heartbroken mm. that we're so fucked that we can't figure out a system where a five-year-old doesn't have to go through an mm. active shooter drill. That we're mm-hmm. allowing these generations of these kids to just grow up with this level of trauma. And it's weird to me that we don't take what we know about mental health and the I effects know. of trauma as seriously as we take corporate profit. I don't get it. Doctors are saying this traumatizes children. This is not safe. And people are like, well, that's just a bunch of bullshit. It's like, no, it isn't. None of this is bullshit. Trauma is real. The effects this will have on our children are real. Chemicals in the water and the cancer they're causing in people are real. Hello, did anyone see Aaron Brockovich? Right, right. And now this administration has rolled back EPA protections of our rivers and our water supplies. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not supposed to be a Republican versus Democrat fight. That's supposed to be for us. Gun control and the protection of our children should be for all of us. Yeah. You know, a rifle pointed at your child doesn't care if their parent votes down-ballot Democrat or Republican. Right. It literally doesn't matter. Yeah. And I, I don't know how we've lost the plot. And I really blame the senators and Mitch McConnell in particular for stonewalling the bills Congress has passed on gun control legislation and on so many other things. There are 400 bills sitting on his desk. Dying on his desk right now. He calls himself the Grim Reaper and thinks it's funny. And then lies and says that the Democrats haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the disinformation. It's the propaganda yeah. that is so insidious. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do we combat that? I think we do things like this. I think we talk to each other. I think we use whatever relative privilege of a platform we have, whether it's a podcast, a big Instagram or Twitter following, whether it's the moms at your daughter's school, what, whether it's your five family members around the table. Tell the truth. Have these conversations. Motivate each other. Because if we don't start voting on these issues, we're going to lose the ability to. When the president is posting memes of himself being president until 2046, he's popularizing and desensitizing all of us to the idea that he's going to instill himself as, as a, a dicta- monarch. install himself as a dictator or a monarch. Yeah. Fully. Oh, it's not a joke. And people say, oh, he's joking. He's, he's not, not joking. joking. No, he's not joking at he all. He doesn't joke. No, there's science behind all of this, and he knows what he's doing. His team, at least, knows what they're doing. So I, I think— I think it's really on us to talk to each other this way and and to be reminded, you know, as crazy as it feels, we're venting, but I feel so inspired. Us no, talking about this stuff has me like doubled down on what we're going to do and how we're going to change it and who we're going to talk to. I don't find this to be depressing. I find this to be wildly invigorating. It's like pouring gasoline or, or starter fluid on your coals on your barbecue. It's like, let's yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. So— I was in New York last year in May, and I was getting off an airplane at, like, 1 in the morning. (laughs) And I get, I don't know, 15 FaceTime calls from Sophia, and I was like— Oh, my God, she wasn't picking up. I thought the world was on fire, literally. I was like, I have to call her, and I have to call her, and I have to call her, and I have to call her. And I'm, like, getting my luggage. I'm like, oh, my God, what does she want? (laughs) (laughs) And— 
finally I pull out. I literally had been like asleep on the airplane, working for six hours on the flight. I have a side scrunchie with my hair. I just, I'm a disaster because it's one in the morning. And Sophia's like, can you say hi to my friend? And this is on FaceTime, which I don't enjoy doing. And she hands the phone to Hillary Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) You are the best friend ever. It was great. And she's like, say hi. (laughs) I had these, I was taking screenshots of her. And she's going, (laughs) my my jaw is on the floor. You know, that ugly, happy face that you make where you're just in shock and you're like, snot's coming out of your nose because you're like crying. And and then she's like, oh, and look at Bill. (laughs) And she hands the phone to Bill Clinton, who was wearing an I'm a voter fan. So I am... Not fucking, I have no idea what I said. It was just one of those, like, where you're out of your body, and I just, like, I love you so much. I don't even know what I love. I was, like, just, like, <laughs> ugly crying about how much I love them. But that happened. Not only was it just the nicest thing that could have ever happened in my life, and Peter will have a lot to live up to, but that was because— <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter. You, um, For the second time, I'm sorry, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were casually interviewing the Clintons. It was very cool. And— you now have this incredibly successful podcast, which mm. we're all obsessed with, and and I learned so much from. And my long-term desire in life is for you to be Oprah for this next generation. How has this journey taken on for you? It's the best. It's <laughs> the best. Again, I'll go back to go forward. I went to USC because I wanted to study Journalism. acting was my plan. I got into their BFA theater program. And, you know, it's like you're 17 years old, auditioning for a theater school. They accept 14 kids a year and thousands of kids audition. And I was like, this is what's going to change it for me. You know, I was all excited. And I got there and it felt really small. The focus felt so narrow. And I realized that I love to look out wide. Mm -hmm. And After a year in the program, I just was like, I don't think I want to do it this way. I don't think this is for me. I want to tell stories, but I don't think this is for me. And I transferred into the journalism school. And that was a moment that just blew everything open for me. Analyzing current events and the way that people are portrayed and represented and how their stories are told and what we talk about and how do we find a lead and what does a headline look like and what are we really saying and and how is it done irresponsibly? And how is it done responsibly? And, and then I started studying political science and communications. And I was just never happier. And then I started booking auditions all the time because I had so much shit to say. And, right. you know, everything was so cool. And it made me love being an actor more. That makes sense to me. Because I knew what it was really all about. Mm-hmm. Like about people and their yeah. journeys. Yeah. And I was pretty shell-shocked when I left my last job. I really was. I love my job, but it was, there's just nothing worth it. Yeah. And I'm realizing that I'm having that experience again. The experience I had when I started at the Annenberg School at USC is the experience I'm having right now. And I made my own curriculum. Mm. And I'm taking that brain that's been trained to be a journalist and that is obsessed with people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their political party, no matter what they believe in, and I'm getting to do it again. But I'm getting to do it again with the perspective that I have now, with the parts of the world that I've seen, with what I understand about people. You know, we we talked about doing this podcast 
really because I think people have these ideas about an activist as someone who's angry or someone that is like the Dalai Lama that I can never be. And Mm -hmm. we were like, no, it's really just someone who does something more than nothing. Mm -hmm. And trying to bring forward conversations and examples of people that like didn't go to activism school Mm -hmm. and get knighted by the activism king. And, you know, that they're just people who had courage and conviction in something and understood justice and, and wanted to stand up for it. Take one step. The only way anyone's ever gotten anywhere is by putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. And again, she just says the best things. Glennon Doyle says one of my other favorite things, which is help the helpers. Mm -hmm. You don't Mm -hmm. have to know everything. It's not your job. But if you show up and you help the people who are already working on it, you will learn from them. You, You will learn at their feet. You will learn by their side. And a year from now, someone's going to walk in that door and you'll be the helper they're helping. Mm. We all have such an incredible capability to do something. Because again, information and standing up for what's right has been weaponized politically. And I think that's really toxic and really dangerous. I think it's really important to analyze your motivations Mm -hmm. for what it is you want to help. And if the cause you are helping disenfranchises someone, takes away someone's rights, puts someone in a more vulnerable position than you are in, don't help. Don't do that. Right. Sit with yourself and look in the mirror and figure out why you don't actually support equality for all people. And I say that not to say that you're bad or something's wrong with you. I say that to say a lot of things have been politicized that shouldn't be. And it's on us to look in the mirror and make sure our motivations are coming from a place of love, of equanimity, and of fairness. Yeah. And if if what you care about supports a person in a more vulnerable position than you, mm-hmm. make sure that a person whose rights are being denied, that that person gets those rights granted back to them. Make sure that someone who, who is in an unstable or insecure place in their life, whether it's food insecurity, housing insecurity, whatever, has one less stressful night mm-hmm. this month than the, than the month before, mm-hmm. you're moving in the right direction. But it's on us to check our motivations and make sure they're actually good. Yeah. And if they are, show up and help the helpers. Yeah. I learn a lot from my daughters and the movies that they watch. And in <laughs> Frozen, there's an amazing song that says, do the next right thing. You don't always have to have some big vision or some you know, billion dollar idea or it's like all this shit that's glorified all the time is so hyper enormous that I think it makes a lot of us feel small. But the next right thing can be enormous in someone's world. And there's no rush. Yeah. You don't need to be Glennon Doyle by the end of the year. I mean, no one's ever going to be Glennon Doyle. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But you can be inspired by her and take one step on on one of the paths that she is is highlighting. Yeah. I love you, Sophia Bush. Oh, my gosh. I I love you guys, too. You're the best. Thanks. You guys are the best. We're so lucky. I just want to be you when I grow up. (laughs) I do, too. Give me a break, the both of you. Thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week as we speak to my favorite person in the world, Zach Scow, the rescue savior.
We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.